Hey, it's John with a quick favor to ask before this month's show. At Dirty Spoon, we pay out of pocket to make this show happen. Our underwriter covers our station fees, but the actual costs for the production, hosting, and hard work that goes into all of these pieces come out of our pockets. And our time. We've never made a dime on this show since it started, and in all honesty, that's never been a goal of ours. All we want is to break even. You can help us do that by subscribing through our Patreon on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes and see all the artwork from our incredible illustrators. Thanks. Here's the show. From 103.7 WPVMLP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Lou Doylan.
let's face it, none of our favorite foods are the fanciest. Sure, we all like a good steak tartare every now and then, but our favorite foods tend to be the simpler things, ones that connect a little deeper in our lives and in our own stories. When writer and community organizer Morgan Steele Dykeman found herself moving from Maryland to Washington State, she also found herself missing a taste of home, the humble blue crab. The foodie within me is thrilled to have a vast variety of seafood at my fingertips here in the Puget Sound region. There are several species of oyster and clam that are totally unique to these salty waters that connect Seattle and Vancouver to the Pacific. Literal boatloads of fish fresh from the waters off Alaska arrive daily, and we have our pick of the freshest, largest crabs in the Western Hemisphere. Seafood and saltwater culture are woven into the identity of this place. It's one of the reasons I wanted to live here. I'm from Maryland, which has a special connection to the water, too. I grew up as a self-proclaimed river rat, spending my days April through September swimming in the Severn River, a brackish tributary to the Chesapeake Bay. In spite of the plethora of sea creatures I could eat here on any given day, Maryland blue crabs are still my favorite crabs. Florida can keep its stone crabs and Maine its lobster. Alaska its king crab and the bayou its crayfish. They can keep the butter and the fancy claw crunchers and the little plastic bibs. All I want is a hot, steaming pile of blue crabs smothered with so much Old Bay it makes your eyes water. Sure, the sweet-tasting snow crab is the easiest to pick and the most bang for your buck in terms of meat output for effort input. The king crab is the most flavorful and has a pleasant density to its texture. Here in Washington, the salty Dungeness crab is considered our local crab, one which you pick apart most similarly to the way we pick blue crabs. I like all those crabs, but to me, they don't hold a candle to blue crabs, which other folks have a hard time understanding. I get it. Blue crabs are small. Their shells are sharp and tough to crack. and You have to really get in there and dig out the meat with your fingers, not a tiny fork or knife. The meat doesn't even taste particularly good on its own, which is why we dunk the clumps of meat in white vinegar and then coat them in Old Bay. A few weeks ago, I went out to happy hour with a rich techie friend, and he started rambling on about the best Dungeness crab he ever had at a pricey downtown restaurant that charges by the claw. He asked me what my favorite crab is. I felt a little embarrassed and a little protective over my puny blue crab roots. He made a confused facial expression when I gave him my answer. I'm not surprised. A lot of folks out here have never even heard of Old Bay, much less blue crabs. He told me that where he's from, in Connecticut, they throw those crabs back or use them as bait. A spurt of resentment boiled up within me as I listened to him trashing my favorite childhood treat. When I went crabbing with my dad during childhood, I felt pure joy. My dad would wake me before the crack of dawn and we'd walk silently through the neighborhood to the riverside. I remember the worn, cool, gray-brown wood of the dock the soft rhythm of the waves lapping against the hulls of boats moored in the shallows, the way we whispered to each other because we didn't want to disturb the calm of the early morning. Catching crabs, like eating them, was a time-honored tradition in my hometown, passed down through the generations. I loved the way my dad would stroke his chin while scoping out the pilings for crabs, the clumsy way he'd fasten twine to the butt end of a board with his chewed-up fingernails, The way he used our kitchen scissors to snip the chicken giblets up into bite-sized chunks for use as bait. I loved laying belly down on the dock with Dad, looking into the muddy brown water, waiting to see if the twine would become taut, 
a sure sign that a crab was on the line. Dad would slowly draw the twine in with his fingertips, inch by inch, and when the crab became visible, I'd scoop it up with my net. My happy hour friend probably never caught a crab himself in his life. The crab he paid $20 for was probably hauled up out of the Bering Sea by some poor boy risking his life for minimum wage up. Over our drinks, my friend moved on to describing the class and grandeur of the restaurant. I imagine him eating a crab off a china plate with a silver fork, cloth napkin tucked into his shirt collar, chasing it with fine wine. It all seemed so... wrong. In Maryland growing up, when Dad and I brought home a bushel of crabs, the whole family knew we were in for a treat. A Maryland crab feast is an all-day activity. I mean, there's the catching of the crabs, the cooking and preparation of the crabs, the waiting for the crabs, and the eating of the crabs. With most other kinds of meals, the eating may take only a fraction of time that the preparation does. Not so with Maryland blue crabs. The feast in Maryland takes hours, often more. After catching the crabs, you have to start preparing the food. Dad would yank our crab pot out of the bottom cabinet and stick the towering silver artifice atop the grill on the back porch. A crab pot is something every Maryland family has, even if they only use it once or twice a year. You add water to the pot until it's a few inches deep, dump your live crabs in, and then steam them. Dad would mine the crab pot with a bud light in hand while my mom, sisters, and I prepared the table. Maryland crabs are messy, and that's part of what makes them fun and delicious. We'd grab a few copies of the Baltimore Sun and unfold them, laying them across the kitchen table, which we dragged outside onto the porch so that the table wouldn't get too messy. Mom would hand me a roll of masking tape, and together we fastened the newspaper to the table. Then she pulled the supplies out of the cabinet. Wooden mallets, butter knives, ample canisters of Old Bay seasoning, small cups of white vinegar, a bucket for beer, and a bucket for scraps, and several rolls of paper towels. Even I can admit that the downside of Maryland blue crabs is that you don't get a lot of meat out of a single crab. So to fill our bellies, Mom always steamed some Maryland white corn and potatoes, which were also dumped into buckets on the tables. When the crabs were finally done steaming, Dad dumped them onto a cookie sheet, and Mom slathered them with Old Bay. We kids licked our lips and eyed the crabs, which were blue when we caught them, but became a bright red once steamed. When the parents sat the mountain of crabs down on the table, we dove in. Picking crabs requires a special dedication and patience. I mean, each family has its own preferred method that gets passed down from one generation to the next. It's a gruesome process, snapping legs off at the joints, cracking the shell open by hand, and scooping out the guts. Maryland blue crabs have these small spikes on their shells, and no one leaves the table unscathed. Everyone gets a few cuts on your fingers, the sting of which is made worse when the old bay gets into them. Eating just one crab can take up to 30 minutes, because you have to pick all the meat out of all the nooks and crannies, yielding about a quarter cup of meat, if you're lucky. The meat alone doesn't taste super great, and can often taste fishy or salty, but you dunk it in vinegar and coat it in Old Bay. There's no butter, no gourmet remoulade sauce, no bibs or silver tools for cracking the claws. In Maryland, there are no tiny forks either. No forks of any kind, actually. And no plates. This is the common man's feast, a meal anyone within walking distance to a river could catch and prepare for themselves. There's no glory in blue crabs, no finery or niceness. As far as food goes, blue crabs don't have lots to offer. But it's not the food itself that gives blue crabs their value. It's the community, the practice, the cultural norms around catching them and eating them. 
So even though we have all the seafood we could want out here in Seattle, when I got engaged a few years ago, my dad still ordered a bushel of blue crabs and delivered them by airmail from Maryland for my engagement party. We had to hunt down some wooden mallets and use the Seattle Times instead of the Baltimore Sun for our tablecloth. But I got to teach my younger cousins how to pick crabs, and I passed the practice down to the next generation. That was Courtney DeGennaro Robinson reading Morgan Steele Dykeman's Picking Crabs. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. Caitlin 
Everybody said we were way too young to be falling in love. We should just have fun. We were glowing red hot. We cannot behave. Got married in the church where I first got saved, and we did not have a plan. At all, it didn't matter. We're gonna feel like this forever. We moved into a place we could both afford. Same jobs that we had before, and for the first few years, time stood still. Yeah, we lost ourselves in Jacksonville, and we did not have a plan at all. Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, the Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer. Meredith Lee has become an icon in the food world. Her book, The Ethical Meat Handbook, has made her a hero in the sustainable food world, and her work revolving around sustainable, conscious living has spawned a culture of more focused and balanced consumers. She was recently asked to develop a second edition of the Ethical Meat Handbook, and rather than just putting makeup on the same pig, she revamped the whole project, deepening the focus on the philosophy, theory, and ethics behind ethical meat consumption. We asked her to stop by and read the intro to the new version of her book. And here she is. As I put the finishing touches on the second edition of this book, the sun is coming up, and the quality of its first light is pulling my eyes eastward over the ocean, away from the computer screen, as if by some great magnet. I go outside and put my bare feet on the ground and let it wake me. As this is happening, leaves the earth over are opening, and the instantaneous increase in temperature, which does not seem appreciable to my partner, who is fishing in the surf and shivering, is enough to wake up more microorganisms than there are grains of sand in the entire world. And they begin to breathe and eat and release and die 
in a dizzying infinite orgy of heat and sugar and acid and gas, thereby, among other things, producing the smell I associate with a spring morning. I marvel. For this ritual sun-gazing feels novel to me, yet is as ancient a human practice as our oldest civilizations, and predates even human animals, in a contract between the sun and non-human existence that traces to a blindingly improbable moment, when the chemical trappings of our planet crashed with the sun's energy to produce what we now often take for granted, life. The sun's light has not yet reached Redwood City, California, where the company Impossible Burger is headquartered. I have recently read about their process to produce the bleeding, plant-based burger that is all over menus and the media, made from soy and potato and a liquid ferment of genetically modified yeast. I have not seen their production facilities or the vats of liquid hemoprotein within them, but I can imagine its color. Just days ago, I uprooted my garden cover crop of oats and Austrian winter peas and raked through soil the color of dark chocolate to look at the tiny nodules on the roots of the pea plants where rhizobia live. Rhizobia is a type of bacteria that can take nitrogen from the air and convert it to usable form for plants. Nitrogen fixation, as we call it, occurs in these nodules, and if I dust the soil from them in my hands and gently pierce the nodule with my fingernail, I can see a blood red or pink color to assure me that the relationship between these peas and their rhizobia herds has been successful. This color is produced by leg hemoglobin, which is the same protein that Impossible Foods uses to make plant-based meat bleed and taste meaty. The process of nitrogen fixation in the nodules of legume plants, such as my garden's pea cover crop, depends on the health of various biological pathways and involves the enzyme nitrogenase, which contains iron, cobalt, and or molybdenum, mineral components of soils in right balance. Recently, I have been studying the epigenetic regulation of mineral deficiency in plants as well as in humans, which is to say the systemic response to environmental conditions that is remembered by plant and animal DNA. Did my garden soil contain enough cobalt or molybdenum to enable nitrogenase catalysts for rhizobia to do its work? Had it not, the nodules on the roots of the pea cover crop may have been merely white or a pale banana color but the plants would grow all the same, and I might pick their shoots for a salad and go about my day. But what signals would the lack of traced metals send to the pea plant as it grew and produce seed for next year, and even to my body or the bodies of my offspring as I ate a salad from my garden? Impossible Burger uses genetic technology to isolate leg hemoglobin from soybean root nodule bacteria and then encodes it into yeast, which, when fermented, multiply and produce more leg hemoglobin, which churns in stainless steel vats, ready to be added to the company product. I pull the roots and the shoots of my oat and pea cover crop aside and make tracks in the deep coffee-colored soil for my onions, cabbage, sculpit, kale, and leek crops. A proponent of low-till agriculture, what I am doing slightly disturbs me, just as it disturbs the hyphae of many beneficial soil fungi, such as mycorrhizae, which I have spent a year or more ensuring a home in my garden. The barefoot farmer Jeff Poppin swears by a minimal, shallow disturbance of soil at seasonal transitions to kill the microbial communities associated with one seasonal crop 
and an awakening and fermentation of the new generation of soil life. On the basis of this belief, he grows eight acres plus of organic vegetables without irrigation every single year. I solace myself with this thought, and I watch a dazzling exodus of earthworms as it makes its way towards darkness after I've disturbed the peace. The smell, the activity, the solar energy, fermentation, life and death that I could literally feel emanating from my garden at that moment, and on top of it, the crashing of the ocean waves and the jiggling living sea foam on the beach today gives me muse for a thousand years of impossible burgers. I want food with the sun in it. I want living food. There will be a thousand and one attempts to secure food in our day and age. These include test tubes, pills, and super crops, and we very likely won't be able to stop the scientific approaches which take nature out of context, so to speak. I don't deny Impossible Burger its place, and indeed won't deny its intention in a colossal and very flawed system. But I am a lifelong pilgrim for food which feeds us more than substance, and food that remains our way of participating in an energetic discourse and a reciprocity with the earth. By this I mean food from the soil, well-raised, full of solar and magnetic and mineral richness, synergy which isn't being piped to a seedling or encoded in a virus. There are resonating questions which have heckled me, appropriately, during the revision of this book. They remain. Is it relevant? Is it possible? Are we running out of time? In middle spring, around Mother's Day, the grass on a North Carolina pasture rises out of incessant rain, suddenly, to waist high. As you walk through it, you can't help but hold your arms out like wings, letting the seed heads, gravid with risk, brush on the new calluses of your palms. The sheep will be covered over with it, and their lambs down in the depths of the grass will bleat a high, worried song, just so their mothers will answer. The cows with their awkward horns will be up to their chins in food. On the edges of the pasture, giant tractors will mow paths beside the road, and cars will swerve off the pavement to make room for broom, poison ivy, privet, multifloral rose, and a litany of other plants eager to make use of disturbed ground. The sheep will peer over the fence I've made to sniff at them, nibbling carefully. The lambs will call. The cows will upend their slow tails to swat at flies in the sun. This grass, this food, with its constituents cellulose, hemocellulose, and lignin, is the most abundant food source in the world. Together with trees, grasses spread over more of the Earth's surface than any other food source. If you stand or sit in the tall grass in North Carolina in May, while the wind blows it like water, and the muted purples and grays and greens of the seeds shimmer in the sun, you will wish you could eat this food and receive of its warmth and its wholesome smell. But you can't. And you will wonder, what if we poison all the honeybees? You might have just passed over a stand of milkweed and scoured it over to find no monarch caterpillars. So what if we mine all the topsoil, collapsing it into rivers and wind? What if we drain all the aquifers? What if we starve out the cobalt and rhizobia in their little root houses? What will grow then? What will eat the sun's gifts? What will root in and send messages to the worms and the protists? Grass, broom, poison ivy, kudzu, sedge, privet, autumn olive, cellulose, hemocellulose, and lignin. 
And the hooves and the spit and the dung and the piss of the animals who eat that food will be the only thing that can bring us back any lively conversation, any discourse with the elements, with the beetles, with us. As agriculture remains highly politicized, corporatist, and extractive, we need the herbivores. We need a stewardship of the land that includes animals, and we need the nutrients that they can translate from the sun and the soil and the rain. And if we can put men on the moon, we can manage our relationship with animals mindfully on any scale. I choose food with the sun in it. I choose living food. And so, the intention for this book is the same as it ever was, to heal. When I wrote it, I was healing myself from a massive fissure in life and an endeavor. And I was simultaneously bringing about a relatively short, however storied amount of perspective on healing land and systems for food. I am astonished at how much I have learned and how much my positions and understandings have become more complex since the first release of this work. So much has changed, but the seed and the medium have not. We still need, we will need, volumes of thought and practice about the noble contract between people and food that don't abandon all hope for a positive human relationship with sunlight and rain and soil. This book is based on the belief that on a warming planet, Divided by injustice and doubt and starvation on many levels, every eater has a way to conjure hope and empowerment, not tomorrow, but now. In this update, I hope you will find some of the same information honed, and also new information and thought that speaks to some of the real idiosyncrasies of being an omnivore in health in our current times. You will also find deeply considered problems, as ever. My intention has never been to present the equation solved. I hope you will see, also, what a fantastic dilemma this sort of book is, as it tries to approach the world as it is while fashioning it forward, toward the future. My hope is that the conversation continues, and that you take away from this work not only meaning and cause to participate in a very worthy exploration of your humanity, but also enjoyment. Community, vitality, deliciousness. If we cannot keep sight of those enlivening characteristics, even as we air all of the difficult questions, then we deny ourselves the very thing that will give us longevity. Recognition of ourselves as natural beings, as animals, connected participants in a wild yet elegant universe. May we recognize that the privilege is greater than or equal to the challenge ahead. That was Meredith Lee reading from the introduction to the second edition of her book, The Ethical Meat Handbook. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, and her book, Wherever Books Are Sold. Look for our interview with her on our podcast stream, The Second Helping. We talked for about a half hour about some pretty crucial subjects. I recommend tuning in.
your fast food go-to what's my fast food go-to mm-hmm. uh it's got to be like taco bell at like 3 a.m <laughs> like when it's you're, you're a little tipsy mm-hmm. you make the uber pull over to taco bell and then you wake up the next morning with like chip crumbs it's a squeezy yellow cheese that really really gets it going in the evenings yeah the uh <laughs> the, the tortilla <laughs> And the uh, no, no no the the hot sauce packets yeah yeah I I mean that was like one of my favorite foods growing up was was Taco Bell really I was yeah fast food was like a big thing I think in, mm. if you grew up in the in the eighties and nineties like fast food was it you know it was it uh, was a treat for I us mean, that was like my favorite thing in the world was going in to get the book it stamps at at Pizza Hut. And when mm-hmm. you finished a book and they would give you the rewards for it and you got like the pizza and they had the <laughs> video games and you could play the Pac-Man in that little uh, that little booth style video game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are like, that's the, the majority of my childhood memories revolve around fast food and I think it still plays a part in my life. So I still try to find fast food sometimes. I like, I, I, I look out for when there's like a new release. I want to try the merit from Arby's. I want to try the what? new meat carrot. The what? It's a meat carrot. 
in response to all the 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 vegetable based meats, they've released a meat based vegetable. It sounds gross as hell, but yeah. I'll I'll try it. I'll try anything once. You let me know how that goes. Yeah, I'll bring you one. Oh no, no. <laughs> but I remember I remember my mother saving up money to buy us Happy Meals um, at the end of every month because that's when she got her paycheck, and it was such a huge. Um, moment for us every week was getting happy meals or getting an ice cream cone from McDonald's. And it was such a huge part of my childhood. And I think that that is why, um, you know, this, this essay by Juanita Mance about her fast food memories and her Latino childhood is something that really speaks to a lot of us because a lot of us talk about, you know, we talk about fine food and we talk about food that we love and I think I don't think that fast food comes into that conversation enough or it's something that we're not. Well, there's a stigma to it. And I think is. that that's like I, it kind of bums me out because, A, I think that a lot of that stigma is poor shaming. Mm. And that always really bothers me. But B, I think it's like it's ignoring a big part of our history for a lot of us that grew up in the 80s. Like where fast food was just a, an accepted thing and nobody thought that it was that unhealthy or that bad for you. And so, yeah, I think her story's great. Um, yeah, here's Brooke German reading Juanita Mance's Fast Food Memories. As the daughter of a German-American father and a Mexican-American mother, I should know at least one of my heritage cuisines well. Unfortunately... My ignorance of food culture continues to vex me, and any acquired knowledge of my food culture is limited at best. What I do know has only been acquired from visiting restaurants as an adult. I know nothing about my dad's German heritage food, and for years, more like decades, I was ashamed that I didn't know how to make homemade tamales, and that my Mexican mom couldn't cook. I will confess that I'm a connoisseur of fast food and processed food products. It is something that I used to try and hide. As an adult writing about and through my childhood culinary memories, I have learned to celebrate my fast food past because my recollections make me who I am. In many of my memoir stories, there is a fascination and obsession with food. This obsession probably stems from my dad's preoccupation with having or not having enough to eat. As a young boy in post-depression Great Falls, Montana, my grandparents could not afford to feed my dad and his two siblings. In a sign of the times, my paternal grandparents' solution was to place my dad, his brother, and sister in an orphanage for a couple of years. I never met my paternal grandparents. They died before I was born, and then my dad became an orphan once again. But I would like to ask them what they thought when they dropped my dad off at the orphanage. Did they ever wonder what my dad was eating and if he went hungry? Dad passed down his obsession by regaling my sisters and I with stories of his stomach growling as a young child. At the orphanage, Dad was forced to eat bowls of white rice. Growing up, Dad would tell Mom to never make white rice. He said it made him gag. He didn't mind Mom's Mexican rice, because that was the only thing she knew how to cook. Food memories can tell much about a person. When I think of the food from my childhood, the most prevalent memory is of McDonald's. The memory says much about who I am, but it also says much about the time I grew up in and where. My childhood hometown was 1970s and 1980s Ontario, California, a low-income suburb about 60 miles from Los Angeles. 
Dad was a truck driver and mom was a waitress, and time and money was always short. Dad's favorite treat for us was to stop at McDonald's when he got off at work at Mayflower Moving Company, especially if his customers had tipped him. Sometimes, Dad would even take us in his 16-wheeler, and my sisters and I would tell cars to move it by yelling over Dad's CB radio that also acted as a loudspeaker. My choice at McDonald's was always a cheeseburger with french fries and a small orange soda. I savored each bite of the cheeseburger. The bun of the cheeseburger was soft, and the meat always tasted fresh, and the fries were a hot, salty explosion in my mouth. I know McDonald's doesn't taste the same, but is it a matter of perception or fact? Regardless, many of my friends have the same nostalgia for McDonald's Golden Arches. It was as much a part of the 1980s childhood as Pac-Man and Love Boat. The next stop on my childhood food memory lane is Pizza Hut on 4th and Grove in Ontario. Dad occasionally took us after he got off work and mom went to work. Just in case you don't know, Pizza Hut used to be an actual restaurant with a jukebox and tables with red and white checkered tablecloths with small black and white televisions on every table. A waitress came to take the order and served their thick crust pizza at the table in a big black skillet. We always ordered a large pepperoni pizza, a pitcher of root beer, and Dad had a standard pitcher of Budweiser. Dad would plug the little black and white television with quarters, and my sisters and I would watch episodes of Different Strokes and Facts of Life while we grabbed slices of the hot, cheesy pizza and shoved them into our mouths. Dad would sit and watch us in his sweat-stained green Mayflower uniform and shake his head. Slow down, girls, he would say, and don't forget to save your mom a piece. Even after a long day of moving furniture, Dad let us watch our sitcom episodes while he drank his beer with a tired look in his eyes. In our family, eating out was a treat, and Dad was a cook, not my Mexican mother. Dad guarded his coffee can of bacon drippings like it was the most valuable of treasures. And when he was cooking, no one was allowed into the kitchen. When he was done, a bright sheen of oil glistened on the countertops. Dad didn't cook German food per se. He favored American classics like pork chops, hearty beef stews, and meatloaf for dinner. Dad packed our lunches with Polish sausage and pickle sandwiches or Spam with mustard— and his most special lunch sandwich was potted meat delight with mayonnaise and relish on white bread. His sandwiches were impossible to trade and often went straight into my school's trash can. I was always a peanut butter and jelly kind of girl. I will also confess that because of my dad, I love a fried egg sandwich with salt and mayonnaise, but only when no one is looking. When I think back to try and at least capture one side of my food culture, my mom's Mexican side, the only thing that pops into my mind is taco night. My first and most powerful memory of Mexican food is ground beef simmered in canned tomato sauce and Tabasco. My sisters and I spooned the mixture into store-bought taco shells. The shells always tasted a little stale. Mom always made sure that there was lettuce and tomatoes cut up on the side, along with refried beans from a can. My twin sister, Jackie, always tried to take more than her fair share of tacos, and our little sister, Annie, hogged the sour cream. Biting into them, the sauce from the meat and tomato would run down our chins. The tacos were hot and crispy, and I always ate at least two. The first one I would bite into with gusto. The grated cheddar was always a little melted from the heat of the meat mixture and the tomatoes, and sour cream gave the taco a creamy sweetness, which contrasted with the saltiness of the fatty ground beef. 
Mom's solo homemade culinary offering was her rice, which was the perfect blend of spicy and salty. Take rice and brown it briefly in a pan with hot oil, onions, and, and crushed fresh garlic. Transfer rice to a large pot. Add water and tomato sauce and bring to a boil. Cover and simmer for at least two or three hours without opening the pot. Add salt to taste. As an adult, I always mess up the rice by checking on it too much. Mom never had that problem. My next memory of Mexican food, if you can call it that, is Pub and Taco. Pub and Taco, a precursor to Taco Bell, was located on 4th Street in Ontario, right past Vineyard Avenue. A tostada was only 25 cents and tasted like heaven. My sisters and I would ride out Schwinn bicycles to Pub and Taco with our best friends Melinda and Pam. Whoever had money pitched in and we all shared. Sometimes we paid in wrapped pennies. We would open the tostada slowly. I remember how crispy the shell was, and the hot sauce came in packets that we would suck on. Mom waitressed at a Cantonese-style Chinese restaurant for most of my childhood, and Melinda and Pam's mom, Mary, watched us most afternoons. Mary would not take money for watching us. Occasionally, Mom would bring Mary some Chinese duck from her restaurant in a brown paper bag. Mary was born in Mexico, and unlike my mom, she knew how to cook. Her pozole was a spicy combination of pork and hominy with shredded cabbage and a touch of lime. Mary would feed us the soup in small ceramic bowls with homemade tortillas on the side. We all crowded around the kitchen table, slurping down the pozole as fast as possible so we could fill our bowls with a second helping. In my sophomore year of high school, I worked at Taco Bell. I was only 15, but had a work permit. They trained me to make the taco meat by placing ground beef into a huge pot and pouring in a large bag of taco flavoring, which brought back my childhood memories of my mom mixing the ground beef for our taco nights. I loved Taco Bell's Mexican pizza and ate it on my break every time I worked. What I remember is the hot and salty ground beef mixing with the sauce and melted cheese on the crispy shell. I went through a drive-through last month and ordered the Mexican pizza to try and recapture the magic. It tasted like old flour and burnt bitter meat. Has fast food went that far downhill, or have my taste buds changed? After high school, Melinda and I worked as waitresses at a restaurant called Don Jose's in Montclair, California, on the corner of Central and 9th Street. We had to wear authentic Hawaiian-style flower dresses that we pulled down to our shoulders. Don Jose's had a generous eating plan for its employees, and Melinda and I would often share the arroz con camarones de pollo, a spicy combination of chicken, shrimp, and rice. The shrimp were the large ones, and Melinda and I would portion them out to one another to make sure we each got our share. We ate the rice and shrimp like fajitas and tortillas with salsa. My next memory of Mexican food is from when I was 20 and dating my boyfriend Adrian and husband-to-be some 16 years later. Adrian and I would frequent a Mexican restaurant called La Cita in Montclair. I drove by a while ago, and the restaurant is closed, and the building is all dusty and bordered up. It made me want to peek in the windows to see the table where Adrian and I used to sit. Adrian and I would start with a small wooden bowl of chips with their spicy green salsa, washed down with a beer margarita. The restaurant did not have a full liquor license. I never remember the waitresses checking our IDs. Our favorite plate was grilled carne asada, and the steak was always tender and perfectly cooked. Adrian would laugh at me for doing the white girl thing by eating their homemade tortillas with butter. 
the rest of my Mexican food memories blend together like homemade salsa. There was a Mexican restaurant I liked by Mount Sac when I was a junior in college. I was struggling to get by while waitressing part-time and going to school. And when I was stressed, I would go get some fish tacos with lime. And I can still remember the pizza place I used to frequent by UC Riverside when I transferred to finish my four-year degree in English literature. The place had a taco night and 99-cent Coronas, and my friends and I would gather around the tables and laugh. And there was King Taco in Los Angeles when I went to USC Law School. I also can't forget Houston, Texas. After law school, I moved to Houston for a job at a large law firm, and their Tex-Mex creations sustained me through three years of loneliness away from my boyfriend, friends, and family. I showed my fondness for Tex-Mex cuisine by gaining 30 pounds. My favorite treat was the fast food Tex-Mex restaurant, Taco Cabana. And after a long day of work, I would drive through and buy their chips and queso, which were hot tortilla chips with a side of melted cheese swimming with meat and peppers. I ate most of the chips and queso in the car while driving home. As a deputy public defender in Riverside, California, my favorite restaurant, Heat Kitchen on University Avenue, serves Mexican and Korean fusion. Try the Taco Sam, which is a lettuce taco with Korean short rib meat and sriracha sauce. It is the perfect, soul-satisfying blend of sweet and spicy, and the cold lettuce wrap cools it off. They also do a mean Mexican pizza with a crispy shell piled with hot pork and just-right spicy sauce that reminds me of my teenage favorite from Taco Bell in all the best ways. I guess I am an anti-foodie, because the memories I cherish most about food are my fast food childhood memories. The taco nights when I was little and sitting with my sisters at the table in our Ontario house. Fighting each other to the table and wrestling over the sides of cheese, lettuce, and tomato. Biting into store-bought taco shells. Shoveling mom's homemade rice into our mouths while fighting over who got the last taco. Driving with my dad to McDonald's to get a cheeseburger in his big rig. Watching television while eating pizza with my sisters at Pizza Hut. Those bike rides to pub taco with my sisters and our best friends. The fast pedaling and yearning for the taste of a 25 cent tostada on my lips. Those memories are my childhood. And all I need to do is go to a drive-thru or order a pizza for a taste of nostalgia. Like most memories, these memories are bittersweet and don't always taste like I remember. These may not be the most elevated culinary memories, but they are all mine.
The Dirty Spin Radio Hour is made possible by The Marketplace Restaurant. Celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant and founded in 1979, The Marketplace has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. And there you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papano. Music in this episode by Lou Doylan, Angelo D'Augustine, Crumb, PQPQPQ, O. Olivier Marguerite, Paper Cuts, Chris Staples, Marco Beltrami, Night Moves, John Bryan, Sun Glitters, Alto Ovarsen, Mux Mool, Ben Lovett, and Bing and Ruth. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVM-LP. À travers mes pensées, je te nomme capitale ton amour végétal. Yeah.